Enjoying these episodes? Give us a shout out on social at Built On Air. We'd love to hear your comments and suggestions. So drop us a like and be sure to subscribe to catch new episodes when they release. It helps us keep the podcast going. Hello and welcome to the Built On Air podcast. Built On Air is a regular podcast where we talk with everyday people and learn about the amazing things they are doing with Airtable. Today's podcast is sponsored by OpenSide, the leading solutions provider for Airtable customers. Check out OpenSide.com to learn more about their products and services that can take your Airtable usage to the next level. Use promo code BUILTONAIR to receive $20 towards any product purchase. In this episode, we talk to Chris Ortolano of Milwaukee RIP, a community outreach organization that works with urban planners and other community members on land use and transportation efforts in Milwaukee and Portland, Oregon. Chris has been active in his community for over 20 years and specializes in summarizing for the greater public the important takeaways from the many, many public meetings relating to a planning project. We discuss some of the biggest issues faced by Milwaukee today, the benefits of infill development, and the challenges to creating affordable neighborhoods through city-driven initiatives. In a major city like Milwaukee, there could be many different agencies attempting to tackle pressing issues like housing affordability at once, but these agencies may not always be working in tandem. Chris shares with us his solution, which uses Airtable to store, categorize, and share information on the numerous planning efforts going on in the city. His urban planning tracker base allows him to have a contact list, a meeting tracker, and a precedent library in an all-in-one, easy-to-use solution. Good morning. Hi, Camille. How are you? I'm really excited to be joining you on the podcast this morning. Yeah, I would love to hear from you, a fellow urban planner. Well, I'm a community organizer that's working with city planners in the city of Milwaukee during our comprehensive plan update process. Yeah, that's a planner to me. Uh, Community engagement is a big part um, of anything that we do in the field. Um, How did you join us in our in our journey to make cities a better place? It's a great question. So I started leading our neighborhood district association Mm -hmm. about 20 years ago. Uh, So I became familiar with the essentially decision-making bodies and the process that they use. Uh, And then I became uh, re-engaged about seven years ago around issues related to fossil fuel exports, which Mm -hmm. are fairly significant in the Pacific Northwest. Yeah. Um, And then most recently, uh, a multifamily housing complex has been proposed literally two blocks from my house. So Mm -hmm. that sort of re-triggered my interest in rejoining the conversation. Yeah. So I'm based out of Los Angeles and um, I'd say our biggest urban planning issue is, you know, housing crisis. There's not, um, there's not too many housing units that are affordable to rent or to own to your average LA citizen. What do you think is the most major or most permeating issue in your area? Well, certainly the lack of affordable housing is a significant concern for almost all of the state agencies. Um, and for example, I live in a fairly quiet suburban um, bedroom community. The average price of a single family ranch house is about $400,000. Mm-hmm. And I can tell you that's outside the uh, affordability for most young working people. Yeah. Uh, so what's being proposed is something called uh, residential infill or upzoning. 
to allow for uh, types of housing that classically haven't been allowed. These are duplexes, triplexes, quads, and what we call cottage clusters. Uh, this is now under consideration for the city of Portland, as well as for the entire state of Oregon, for all cities that are over a significant threshold in terms of population. I think that number is about 20 or 25,000. Okay. So that's um, a fairly progressive policy. There's um, a couple states in the U.S. that are trying to tackle things um, sort of from a larger scope because there are a lot of cities that don't put forth their own initiatives to address the housing crisis. Um, California has its own laws going through the Senate right now. Um, what is your take on sort of that larger approach as opposed to a more city-driven initiative? Yeah, so I think it's it's there's pros and cons. If you didn't have uh, a House bill, which we recall to uh, refer to as House Bill 2001, that mandates this type of residential infill, then many cities wouldn't choose to change their zoning ordinances. I think it's an opportunity to prepare for the kinds of growth that we need. However, to simply mandate uh, increase in sort of building and development without looking at the uh, current transportation requirements creates a bit of a lopsided conversation and opens up a lot of potential problems that are related to transportation planning. So I think that both need to be uh, considered simultaneously. However, that's not what we're seeing in the Portland metro area. Just so our viewers know, um, it's good urban planning, urban design practice to concentrate um, newer or more dense housing near public transit. So you reduce the amount people will need to drive in order to get um, from here and there you know, gives us a little bit cleaner air and makes the streets easier for everyone else. Absolutely. Um, yeah. We would you say that's the approach? High transit corridors. Yeah. Um, and we have a, a very, you know, well-known system that is a light rail system mm-hmm. that has probably 200 miles of light rail that goes north, south, east, west. Uh, and so um, what the challenge is, is that when you don't have those corridors and you want to forecast them, uh, there are some negative impacts that need to be addressed. And I'll give you a good example. Um, we are proposing a, um, a neighborhood greenway, which is essentially a bicycle pedestrian corridor that would go from one opportunity zone to the local light rail station. Uh, this neighborhood greenway is at risk because they also now want to uh, provide additional traffic from a multifamily housing complex on the same street that was proposed for bicycle and pedestrian improvements. So the question really kind of boils down, Camille, is to how do we get people from where they are going to live (laughs) to where they need to work Mm -hmm. and back each day when the majority of people still prefer to drive their cars? Yeah. Again, I'm from Los Angeles, so traffic is a major concern for everyone here. Um, and we are, we don't necessarily have um, an all-encompassing light rail system like many other um, older cities do. Um, we're making great improvements over time, but we're not quite there yet. So there's a lot of overlap and intersect between transportation planning and housing planning. And in order to make sure that you know a good planning effort in transportation and a good planning effort in housing serve everyone's needs, you need a lot of community engagement. And making sure that you're actually asking the people who live there and work there, hey, are we doing a good job? Yeah, so let's talk about that briefly. I know that you are quite familiar with the process of, say, a town hall or an open house. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, we have those here as well. And we have consultants, uh, urban planners that drive those conversations. But we feel like they're often limited in their scope. So we're not able to get into the complexity of the issues. And that's unfortunate. So we developed our own community group to really start to assess the policy changes and start to provide our own policy recommendations. And this has now spurred a whole new level of engagement because we attend every uh, city planning meeting. Uh, We speak directly to the planning directors. We provide input to the senior planners and they are listening to what we have to say. So we've sort of superseded the standards of community engagement because we felt like we needed to deploy a different model. And, And honestly, it's been the source of a little bit of friction but it's also been the source of some great outcomes at the same time. So it's this really interesting dynamic. Okay. That sounds great. Something I've noticed over time is that the way cities and um, urban planning firms will interact with the community at large changes over time with the addition of new technology, for instance, a lot of online engagement um, what has been your approach in Absolutely. in doing so? Yeah, yeah. So um, I just wanted to kind of share you something. This has until recently been the standard for sharing information, right? Okay. The, yes. The, the op-ed page. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, and many of us use that to broadcast our views uh, because many people still read the newspaper, believe it or not. Uh, so then we started to take it another step further. So we developed a wiki. Uh, mm-hmm. which is a fairly flat website. Uh, it's called milwaukeerip.org. And it was really just my approach to understand the agencies involved and the types of decisions that they need to make. And then we created a Facebook group. And then we started to come together at these planning meetings and actually share ideas in real time. Then we started to meet with the actual decision makers. So it was an evolution. And I would say that all of those systems are still in place. We still Mm -hmm. publish op-eds. Okay. Um, But the newest thing that we've started to do is to gather all of that information in a communication system such as Airtable. And this is sort of the next wave for us because now we can gather the information, we can organize it, and then we can start to socialize around it Mm -hmm. and say, hey, if you'd like to get involved, you need to learn these three things. And for those who've learned those, here's three more things. Because I can tell you, Camille, the biggest problem we have is emotion. Mm. Mm. If there's an open house and you're suggesting significant change, and I don't understand the context or the precedence, and you want to put a three-story you know, triplex in my backyard, mm-hmm. well, there's going to be a little bit of tension. Yeah. So we, ser- we see that knowledge can actually help diffuse that tension. And then we can start to bring together some new ideas, some new thinking. So I, I call it right. de-escalating and then finding common ground. Right. There's a, a term that's used a lot in, in planning discussion, um, NIMBYism, which is an acronym for not in my backyard. The general idea is that, well, everyone knows we need more housing and everyone wants housing to be affordable. And I don't think many people really have a problem with, say, a duplex. But when it's, you know, the house right next to you is being converted into more housing, well, now you have more people on your street. And there has to be a way for us to express the benefits of all of these great initiatives that are going to help um, everyone at once, including your direct neighbor. Well, I would agree. Uh, So let's say that we 
agree on the on the fundamentals, but how we get there, I think, is the difficult part. So if we were able to essentially create some test areas and evaluate the impacts incrementally, which is what we're talking about, so upzoning or rezoning certain high transit corridors uh, would be the first way to start. Yeah, I agree. Um, so developing a list of um, precedents of, hey, this city right here, this neighborhood right here did something pretty similar and things are turning out great for them. It's always great to have an example to show people we're not just throwing out these ideas for no reason. Hey, they work sometimes. And and these are things we'd like to see here. Camille, I think that the question that many of us still have are the mechanisms for affordability. Yeah. And we don't know if these new duplexes and triplexes will in fact be affordable uh, Mm -hmm. because we know that they can be built with very uh, high-end materials Mm -hmm. and construction costs are high. So you might get a duplex or a triplex that's owned by somebody else and then rented out, but not sold. And so you create basically an underclass of renters with no pathways to home ownership Mm -hmm. when you promote that kind of residential infill. And so how do we provide the pathways to home ownership? There are very good examples out there, but they're not included in the statewide conversations. I'm wondering, does Milwaukee have sort of a presence of small lot subdivisions? Yes. uh, And our lot sizes are oversized. Okay. Um, For our audience, a small lot subdivision is... um, Basically, when you take a larger residential lot and you cut it up into pieces, allowing each individual person who buys one of those smaller subdivisions to own the whole piece. So that differs a little bit from a condo where you own that portion of the building, but not the land it's under. In a small lot subdivision, you would own both the land and whatever's built on the land. And maybe you share a portion of, say, the driveway you get to get into your garage. Um, that's often seen as one path forward to more opportunities for home ownership without, you know, massive new lots. But as you're saying, sometimes they're pricey. Sometimes they're they're made with really high end materials and they're seen as luxury con- condominiums. So that's you know another problem. It's not easy. What we do is but not we, easy. We want to we want to um, assure mechanisms for affordability. So a construction excise tax is one way mm-hmm. to do that. Okay. But we see in cities like Oakland, for example, where that tax has not been managed properly. So if you look to Seattle, they have a series of principles called HALA, H-A-L-A, Housing Affordability Living Association. We'll look at it. And again, they would say the mechanisms haven't quite achieved the goals that they want. But if we put affordability at the heart and center of this conversation, then maybe things shift a little bit and say, until we provide pathways for homeownership, until we provide uh, pathways for low-income housing, until we provide uh, significant uh, affordability mechanisms, then we can start to build out. Yeah, that's a great way to do it. And those those priorities you just listed oftentimes come out of doing you know extensive public outreach and community engagement and seeing well, this is you know these are the key issues that have been identified. We want to create a, a working advisory committee here in the city of Milwaukee, um, to further evaluate these mechanisms. And we're looking to merge with a diversity, uh, equity, and inclusion proposal Mm -hmm. to create kind of a mm, super group. But here's the thing. 
the city does not want to fund this additional advisory committee because it takes staff time and usually a consultant and that's money that they haven't budgeted for. Yeah. So we want to solve this problem, but yet they want to solve it differently. And the way they want to solve it is by increasing the quantity and types of housing. They think that just by building more and allowing a variety of housing, that that will actually, you know, like supply and demand. But we say no, because the the demand is always going to be high in the city of Portland and Milwaukee, because people want to move here. Yeah. So if you build more houses and even more people and more investors want to buy those houses, there's no inherent reason that those prices are going to go down. Correct. Yeah, it's the same here. Everyone, <laughs> so everyone wants to move to LA. Is yeah. really what, what we're trying to talk about. And that's a complex problem. So can Airtable help us to simplify that? Uh, and here's the deal. There's eight different groups of people. And they all have you know multiple influencers inside each group. So you've got your state groups, your county groups, uh, your city groups, your city planners, your city managers. And all of a sudden, this problem becomes like, like a solar system. Mm -hmm. And here's the thing. They're siloed. They don't know what each other is thinking. Yeah. And there's hierarchies, just like a corporation. Mm -hmm. So can we use Airtable to bring those people together? Can we use Airtable to essentially de-escalate and create common ground? I actually know that we can because we have been doing this in a very ad hoc fashion. Oh, that sounds great. Why don't we take a look? Okay. (laughs) <laughs> well, thank you, Camille, for allowing me to share the urban planning tracker. Uh, this of is course. a relatively new base, uh, so I haven't actually created a series of views, but I think there's two things that I want to share with our audience. One is the ability to essentially group uh, like types of information, uh, and so that would be sort of a vertical axis. And then there's a, a horizontal axis, which you'll see at the top, which is how this information is distributed and used to make decisions. So maybe we'll start at the top real briefly, kind of the highest level overview. So um, in the context of residential zoning or residential infill, there are precedents, which we'll talk about in a minute. Uh, And those precedents are interpreted by agencies, of which there are many. Uh, Typically, these agencies are at the state level, at the county level, and then at the local level. And there are many consultants involved as well. Those consultants then inform the local people Uh, You, as an urban planner, are a type of consultant Mm because you bring this uh, domain knowledge, which we depend on to make good decisions. However, the kinds of changes that are proposed in a mm, master plan or comprehensive plan update bring up a host of issues, a number of issues related to traffic and parking, infrastructure, uh, resource planning, et cetera. And that leads to a series of meetings. Uh, Here in this town, the city of Milwaukee, we had about 25 meetings over the course of two years to engage the community around our comprehensive plan update. Now we're going through the uh, public hearing process to adopt that plan. Uh, Part of the function of the the engagement was that there were a series of committees that were formed and continue to form. This is interesting now. So we have a new committee that's formed to implement the comprehensive plan. Uh, There's additional events around that. And then ultimately there's the work plan And that work plan uh, codifies certain agreements that leads to resolutions. And those resolutions are supported by ancillary documents. Mm -hmm. So given that you and I are familiar with this concept, 
um, I went ahead and created this tracker to introduce other people who are less familiar with this process because they feel frustrated when they don't understand and then they drop out. And when they do, we lose their good ideas or the opposite occurs, which is they show up, but they're upset. And that emotion then precludes their ability to make a positive contribution. And they're like, not in my backyard or you people are, you know, just worried about making a developer dollar. Mm-hmm. When in fact, that may not be the driving force. It appears like developers will be the big winners, but we know that there are other reasons to encourage residential infill. And there are benefits as well. Something that we also get um, a lot out here is there's so much planning being done, not just by my firm, but by other firms and by the cities themselves. So a lot of frustration that we see are um, residents saying, well, I, I've already been to community outreach meetings and things like that. I read the other plan that's out there. Why are we doing this again? There are many plans that have to be made that address different topics and issues, as you've pointed out, in different ways or in with a different focus. And I think something like this, this Airtable tracker would make it easier for people to see, okay, if we, if I want to take a look at how my city is handling this issue, I look at this document. Um, so one of and- the things that we want to do is start to codify the video recordings for all of the meetings. Yep. It's very simple here. I haven't really filled it out, but you have regular session meetings, mm-hmm. uh, then you have public hearings, uh, and then you have community meetings, right? And yeah. all three are where decisions get made. But unless you have a single view, you're going to fall out because these th- we have three, four meetings a week. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you don't have a summary where you start to understand how all of this is moving forward into a committee or a work plan and you, you don't follow it for a month, you'll be behind. And then you feel like, huh, decisions were made without, you know, my additional engagement. Why is that? Yeah. So this could serve as the new uh, newspaper, if you will, where we bring all the disparate ideas together. And guess who benefits? The planning department benefits. Mm -hmm. City councilors benefit because oftentimes there's two different advisory groups, the the planners and the councilors, and they don't have enough time to really coordinate and sync with each other. Yeah, that's a great point. Something that we, we see a lot. Yeah. Uh, putting everything in one place just makes sense. So then you look at the committees, right? And this, these are folks like me. Um, and this is an interesting tab here because two new committees have been established. And I apologize for the acronyms. <laughs> something we all despise. But let's just say that this first committee here is a um, comprehensive plan implementation committee, which is the detailed policies that are used to provide guidance for writing the new zoning ordinances. Yeah. This is huge. Six months ago, this committee wasn't even under consideration. They were just going to go straight from comp plan, which is a broad set of goals and policies, to writing the zoning ordinances. Mm-hmm. And we pushed back. We said, this is too broad. You have to further define. And they heard us. Fantastic. Yeah. I mean, that's a huge win for our community. The second is a committee specific to a historic building. But here's what's going on. There's further discussion, um, this should say proposed, not Portland, around a a citizen involvement advisory committee Mm -hmm. and a diversity, inclusion, and equity committee. And so we want these proposed committees to also be involved in the discussion. And so there's that really interesting tension 
which is they heard us six months ago. They created these two new committees. Will they hear us now? And will they uh, also allow either two more or a fusion? That would be very interesting as well of these two committees. We know that when committees participate, it gets more complex. Absolutely. Because you've got consultants and staffers and people like me who are smart and want to feel validated, but it tips the, mm, it changes the timeline. It changes the decision-making process, but you get better outcomes. Mm. Okay. And more voices are heard. Yeah. I mean, honestly, we'll agree, Camille, that we have a housing crisis and it's not just Los Angeles or Portland. It's across the entire United States. Mm -hmm. But I'd like to further qualify and say that we have an affordable housing crisis. And this is accentuated in cities like San Francisco and New York, where, you know, condos are a million and a half or two uh, on the low end. You know what I mean? Yeah. (laughs) Um, And people have to drive two hours to get to work. So let's take a look at some of the kind of innovative ways that people are starting to address this problem. Uh, I grouped it into sort of four mm, types of things. One is called social housing. Um, So in the city of Everett, Washington, which is just north of Seattle, there's a nonprofit that that combines low-income housing with job training. Mm, Okay. And what happens is, let's say you are um, unemployed and can't find a place and your job skills are outdated, they will provide you with a free place to live for three months, no rent. And then you get job training, and you can work in one of their industries, which is on site. Oh, okay. After you get a job in, say, the cafe or the furniture company, then you can start to back pay that rent. Great, okay. And this this approach has gotten incredibly good reviews from the people who are administering and the people who are there because it combines job training with low-income housing. And that is really, really critical. Yeah. A lot of times um, a barrier to finding a place to rent is they'll ask you for your work history. And, you know, as we've just discussed, everyone is in need of housing. So if you don't have the strongest work record there, they might pass you up for the, for the next person. Uh, You see that over and over again. Yeah. So a lot of times people who are in the most immediate need are not getting the most immediate help. And this sounds like, you know, a great approach to making sure people um, have the opportunity to to get some work experience under their belt. So the next time they look for housing, um, that won't be an issue for them anymore. Yeah. So in the zoning language, we would call this a, com- a community service unit or a CSU. Okay. Uh, and we can zone for these. Uh, however, they did not come up in the comp plan update conversations. I had to go to Seattle and do the research on my own to think outside of our local examples and then bring that idea back. So another example is what's called Mole Hill. Uh, and essentially what they did in, in Vancouver, uh, British Columbia, uh, is they created a cooperative home ownership of 170 units of historic homes to protect them during the urbanization, which happened in Vancouver, say, 20 years ago. Uh, And so now you have this very dense neighborhood of people who have uh, made a commitment to self-organize and self-govern. And again, it's a very stunning model uh, because what it's done is it's built community in the heart of downtown uh, British Columbia, which is known for a lot of uh, steel and concrete high rises and condos, which are beautiful. Don't get me wrong. 
um, but they don't create that same type of community. It t- tends to create a little bit of isolation. Mm, okay. Yeah. So there's two examples from out of state. Uh, now, if we start to look in state, uh, we see some really interesting things happening uh, out of Eugene. There's a group called Trust the Neighbors, mm-hmm. which is actually starting to divine, define zoning ordinances to allow for residential infill while maintaining the integrity of the existing uh, residential neighborhoods. Uh, so the, what they're doing is putting little buffers against tearing houses down, which could be actually utilized with a little bit of improvement. But uh, developers tend to want to scrape those houses and put up a three-story you know, quad or something because they know they can make a lot more money. Uh, so what they're trying to do is find a balance. Uh, and Brunswick Commons is also here in Portland. What they're doing is kind of a hybrid uh public-private model where they're actually leveraging federal funds to provide uh, lower costs for people to buy their own homes. Mm. So these are not smaller size units, they're more standard size units, but the pathway to home ownership is built into Brunswick Commons uh, because they're leveraging federal funds. Great. Yeah. Yeah. So these are the kinds of examples that are not part of our comp plan update conversation. Instead, what we're seeing are things like the Portland RIP, which is the Residential Infill Project, which is currently happening. Uh, it's in public hearing at the Portland Council as we speak. It's a it's a very live debate. Uh, and I can tell you two-thirds of the people are in favor of it. Uh, they want to include about 100,000 new homes, say, over the next 15 years, because we have a very, very deep affordability crisis. But there are consequences when you don't have proper corridors set up for high uh, transit, and it creates an incredible bottleneck, not only in the neighborhoods, but also on the freeways as well. Right. So this is coming out of Minneapolis 2040. You know, for those who aren't familiar, it's the first city that really started to, quote, upzone. Uh, And even beyond that, we have our own sort of growth concept that was defined in 1995 that set uh, something that's very innovative up here in Portland called the urban growth boundary, which basically says we're going to protect our farms and forests and we're going to create a barrier so that you can only build inside of this, you know, boundary. It's not a circle, but, you know, imagine it as such. Right. So we're known for our innovative solutions, but I would think that we'd have to update this. We have to learn from Minneapolis and we can't go too much too fast because there are negative impacts, particularly around complex uh, intersections. So I happen to live near a railroad crossing. Okay. Okay. And guess what? Every morning there's a, there's a traffic jam because there's about, you know, 20, anywhere from 15 to 25 cars that are all stacked up waiting to get across that traffic, you know, that intersection while the trains go by. Yeah. Right. Well, there's also a very large parcel of land and they want to add 400 new cars adjacent to that, that intersection. There's going to be a new access way, a new driveway, 200 feet to the north of this complex railroad crossing. And I can tell you, it's going to create an absolute traffic tsunami. It's going to be untenable. So when we move so quickly uh, to achieve our housing goals, but we don't pay attention to our transportation problems, that creates a lopsided solution. Right. And that you see that a lot with infill development, which is, is basically taking, you know, a parcel or a piece of land that's surrounded by occupied or built up areas and focusing your additions there. Usually, usually that's a good idea instead of, like you said, you know, building in farmland or something or reducing the amount of park space that you might get or just natural amenity. But like you're saying, you end up with problems related to traffic or even um, the demand on emergency services. That's another issue as well. 
and the bicycle pedestrian impacts as well. So we, as a community group, uh, spent about eight months working with the developer and the city planners. And we started to provide an alternative solution that would uh, encourage the bicycles and pedestrians to continue to go through our Greenway corridor, even though it is directly in alignment with this new 234 unit multifamily housing project Mm -hmm. and 400 cars that are going to be coming in and out. So we had to become very sophisticated in how we were going to overlay the new driveway, which was planned directly on top of our Greenway. It became very, very complicated, but we achieved a win-win-win, a win for the city, a win for the community, and a win for the developer. By using this type of process, by using this information gathering, information sharing, and being honestly completely transparent with the city about what our needs are. Yeah, great. So the last thing that's really critical is the concept of affordability. Um, And this is where it's really difficult, Camille, because even though you have mechanisms for affordability, and Seattle may have the most sophisticated in terms of their, uh, I think it's called mandatory housing agreement, um, those mechanisms may not always be successful. Uh, so just adding, uh, you know, a variety of new types of housing may not guarantee affordability. And so then we may actually open up the code without actually solving the problem. And that would be unfortunate. Uh, so we need talented urban planners like yourself to really help us to understand what the mechanisms for affordability are and to share good examples of where residential infill, good transportation planning also led to an increase in affordability. So that sounds like um, this is a a table that you've set up, an air table. And I know you said you hadn't quite gotten to setting up views for it. I think if you set up a form view for this uh, table and send it out to people that you know um, in the field, they'd be able to help you fill out um, this table even more with um, examples like you're saying. Absolutely. So you're, you're taking me to the next level, which is very exciting, which is how do I crowdsource information? Mm-hmm. Because right now people are using email. Okay. Track. Okay. So here's a newspaper article. Here's a meeting. Here's a proposed uh, resolution. And it all gets stuck in these email threads. Mm-hmm. Because you know what, Camille, if you email me and you say meeting on Monday and I email you and say meeting on Tuesday, well, now we have two different concepts in the same thread and somebody else wasn't even included on that email. Yeah. And so let's say there is a meeting on Monday and a meeting on Tuesday, both days. And people go and they're there with their laptops and they enter data about the meeting while they're there. Mm -hmm. Now we have real-time notes. And if we can create a category and tagging system, then we can group those notes and then we can keep up and then we can actually start to distill the most important ideas. This is the next level. Mm -hmm. And it's a community building technique that I've used in other areas, uh, but I'm just now beginning to think about how to make it. uh, So we're going to do some videos uh, and put them on our Facebook group and encourage people to participate because ultimately at the end of the day, These complex issues are hard to engage in unless you have an easy way to start to learn, an easy way to start to give feedback. And when you do, then there's a baby step sort of motion and people get more involved. And that's ultimately what we want. Yeah. And it sounds like Airtable is one of like a perfect solution for that because it lays out things so um, visually and gives you that opportunity to look at things as we are seeing now in a more tabular format to look at everything at once or 
like I said earlier, sending it out as a form to gather uh, people's in input. And with the use of blocks, you can start summarizing data and add charts. This many percent of people attended this meeting, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, even in your role, you might see this as a beneficial way to report back after an open house, for example, mm. uh, or report back after a survey. Many times we want to see the survey data um, because we want to know what the pros and the cons were for the different points of view. Uh, so I think that, um, you know, there might be room to, to, to prototype this in different uh, circumstances. And I can tell you every city, almost every city uh, in this, in the state of Oregon is going to have to go through a comprehensive update process. Mm -hmm. And so there are potential for other communities to deploy a model like this. And increase community engagement at the same time without taking on a lot of overhead in terms of consultants and updating their websites and redoing their newsletter. Those are the barriers to community engagement. Yeah. Many cities do not have very good search engines on their websites. I mean, let's just be straight up about it. I've noticed. And you can't find, and then you get upset. Well, let's put all the data in an air table and then people won't be upset. Mm -hmm. So aspirational. But again, can we simplify a complex process? Can we start to increase engagement? And can we start to make better decisions, not just decisions that are based on a, a certain set of assumptions? I don't know, Camille, honestly, but I think that we might be able to develop this in such a way that other people are like, oh yeah, have you been to the urban planning tracker? Did you see the updates? I added a few last night. Let's go and you know see what's at next week's meeting. Boom, boom, boom. All of a sudden we get a smart community planning for smart growth. Sounds like a perfect future to me. Let's make it happen. Yeah. Um, I'm all for it. This seems like bringing together two things that I love very, very much. One, urban planning and two, Airtable. Um, and it's, it's a nice way, um, something for me to see as, as someone who works in the field is this is an opportunity to actually put out something that people can actually engage with that's easier than our more typical methods of doing so. So they can see everything and things are more transparent, as you say. Absolutely. I think that's the first step. Mm. Oh. So what, what, in your opinion, would make it difficult for you and your agency, your, your, your architecture group, mm -hmm. to start to adopt this type of model in, as part of your community engagement plan? Um, Usually, uh, when you're in the private sector as a planner, you often work with multiple other firms at once um, on a project. So something off the top of my head is we might, um, in California, we call them master plans. Um, in other places, they're comprehensive plans. If we're doing a master plan update, we might have anywhere between three and six other um, firms, companies working with us. So well, then we have to train three to six other um, groups of people. How do we use this? How do they set it up? Um, that might be a little bit of a barrier, but mm -hmm. um, Airtable is pretty intuitive. So maybe that's not that big of a, big of a hangout. Well, um, you know, you could, you could offer one aspect um, and maybe uh, it's just a meeting planner mm. so that everybody knows when the meetings are, because that's a significant problem uh, for the public. Um, and because there's many different agencies, there's many different meetings, but all the agencies have different newsletters. So if you're not signed up, you missed the meeting. Mm. 
honestly, that is the biggest source of frustration between communities and um, governments is not knowing when the meeting was planned to happen. Yeah. And it doesn't help. Like you, you mentioned acronyms earlier, everything's got an acronym and it doesn't help that they're often pretty similar. So you might think you're going to one meeting and in actuality, it's actually for something else. And the meetings are tend to be, um, have multiple items on the agenda. Right. So let's just say that there's three types of meetings for this simple. There's a regular session for, um, you know, the city council CC or our public safety group, PSAC, very simple. Um, and then there's a public hearing for our PC, uh, our planning commission. Um, so if there was a central source for all of these meetings with some uh, understanding of the items that were on the agenda, some comments uh, with regards to what's going to be discussed, I can tell you these things are on our city website, but the nature of the meetings are buried in the packets. Mm. Uh, and you've got to drill through the packets to distill the most relevant information uh, because some of it is sort of, uh, you know, legislative or sort of routine and, you know, less important to the community. But if you distilled it, then you're like, okay, then I'm going to send certain people to certain meetings and we're all going to report back. That's a powerful community building device that builds trust. And ultimately, that's what you want, in my opinion, mm-hmm. because with that trust, we accept the bad with the good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this sounds like a an, an excellent approach. Thank you for sharing it with us. My pleasure. And, you know, to be honest, um, I wasn't quite sure uh, what I was going to talk about, mm. um, but I looked at your profile and it inspired me to create this. So I want to give thanks to you for really being outspoken uh, on your own personal blog site, uh, as well as with your career, because it, it motivated me to, to go ahead and build this. Oh, yay. Inspiring urban planning. That's what I'm here for. Well, you're doing a great job. So I want to thank you for uh, allowing me to share a little bit of our work up here in Milwaukee. Mm-hmm. And uh, also it's uh, it's OpenSide, correct? Yes. The group that sponsors this podcast. I want to thank them for inviting me to join you. Yeah, we are happy to have you. Um, is there anything that you wanted to plug? Uh, maybe a website for um, all of your efforts? Uh, yeah, we have a Facebook page. Uh, it's called Milwaukee RIP, uh, mm-hmm. where you can kind of keep up with the nature of uh, land use and transportation planning uh, in Milwaukee and Portland. Uh, we also have a um, sort of a wiki. It's called MilwaukeeRIP.org. It's fairly technical. But what I would encourage is if anybody wants to learn about how to use um, Airtable to build a community or to be a community organizer, uh, you can go ahead and find me on LinkedIn. Uh, my first name is Chris, C-H-R-I-S. Last name is Ortolano, O-R-T-O-L-A-N-O. I wear a whole different hat during the day. I'm actually uh, a consultant to help simplify complex problems and allow people to use tools like Airtable to make better mm-hmm. decisions. But I do that in the realm of sort of a you know sales and marketing automation. So um, you're going to see a lot of stuff about, you know, sales automation on my LinkedIn profile, but know that I'm the right guy. Chris Ortolano actually do wear a hat on my LinkedIn um, and that I can help you with this uh, in sort of a community uh, organizing capacity as well. That's great. Thanks again. Camille, thank you. Uh, Super excited. Hopefully we'll continue this conversation and I can provide updates as uh, this Airtable uh, Urban Tracker continues to evolve. And who knows, maybe you'll find an opportunity to use something similar in in your um, master plan update uh, engagement process. Of course. All right. Thank you so much. No problem.